Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Why We Love Lincoln is a book written by James Creelman, first published in 1899. The book provides an overview of the life and accomplishments of Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States. Creelman discusses Lincoln's humble beginnings and rise to power, his leadership during the Civil War, and his impact on the United States as a whole. The author also explores Lincoln's personality and character, highlighting his honesty, compassion, and ability to connect with people of all backgrounds. Throughout the book, Creelman argues that Lincoln's enduring popularity and legacy stem from his commitment to justice, equality, and the preservation of the Union. He portrays Lincoln as a visionary leader who faced immense challenges but remained steadfast in his convictions. In addition to examining Lincoln's life, Creelman also provides a broader historical context for the events of his presidency. He discusses the causes and consequences of the Civil War, as well as the social and political changes that took place during Lincoln's time in office. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Hi. Our great battleship fleet thundered peace and friendship to the world as it moved from sea to sea, stinging pens and voices in one country after another answered that America had suddenly passed from blustering youth to cynical old age and that the harmless effrontery of our nationality in the past was not to be confounded with the cold-brained, organized, money-worshipping greed of the new generation of Americans. Meanwhile, in all parts of the American continent, Preparations were being made to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, the humblest, simplest, and plainest of our national leaders, whose name no American can utter without emotion. We think of Washington with pride, of Jefferson and Madison with intellectual reverence, and of Jackson and Grant with grateful consciousness of their strength. But the memory of Lincoln, even now, so many years after his piteous death, stirs the tenderest love of the nation, thrills it with a sense of intimate relationship to his greatness and awakens a personal affection in the average American's breast not a mere political enthusiasm, but a peculiarly heartfelt sentiment that has no parallel in human history. If it be true that the nation has at once become old, that it has grown sinister and corrupt, that it cringes before material success, stands in awe of multimillionaires and prostrates itself before money, why is it that we love Lincoln? 
If in the pride of wealth and strength we have forgotten our early republican ideals of simple justice and manhood, how is it that the movement to commemorate the birth of this lowly, clumsy backwoods man and frontier lawyer turned president a movement begun in the rich cities of New York and Chicago instantly spread to the remotest villages, and all that seemed ugly and haggard, with all that seemed brave and fair and true, swarmed together, heart naked, to make that 12th day of February an unforgettable event. Arches and statues, flower-strewn streets with endless processions, moving ceremonies in thousands of schools and colleges, multitudes kneeling in churches, other multitudes listening to orators, warships and fortresses roaring out salutes. Yet these were the mere externals of Lincoln Day. The average American does not shout when he hears Lincoln's name. Even the political demagogue, the stock gambler, the captain of industry, I, the sorriest scarecrow of a yellow journalist, is likely to grow silent and reverential when that word is spoken. With all our national levity, we do not jest about Lincoln. With all our political divisions, every party today reveres his memory and claims his spirit. It is sober truth to say that he struck the noblest, highest, holiest note in the inmost native soul of the American people. There is nothing so arrogant or sodden and sordid in that new paganism which has set its altars in Wall Street but will in some sense uncover and kneel at the sound of his name. Our fleet, in its voyage around the world, found no record of such a man in any of the lands of its visitations. Each nation, each epoch, each race has its hero. But there is none like Lincoln. Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, Cromwell, how cold their glory seems to his, how immeasurably small are their place in the affections of mankind. And while America was getting ready to honor Lincoln, none might pretend to understand his people who had not first discovered what it is in his character and in ours that, even in this day of restless commercialism, makes us love him above comparison in the story of the world's great men love him for his poverty, for his simplicity, for his humanity, for his fidelity, for his justice, for his plainness, for his life and for his death. By sheer force of character, conscience-inspired, Abraham Lincoln rose from abject depths of squalid environment to become the most august figure in American history and perhaps the most significant and lovable personality in the annals of mankind. In his amazing emergence to greatness from poverty and ignorance is to be found a supreme demonstration and justification of American institutions. It was the common people who recognized the nobility and majesty in this singular man. He understood that always, and even in his days of power, when great battles were fought at a nod of his head and a whisk of his pen set a whole race free, it kept him humble. Perhaps the profoundly tender love which the American people have for his memory is to be explained by the fact that in the secret recesses where every man communes with the highest, bravest and most unselfish elements of his own nature, the average American is an Abraham Lincoln to himself. The power to recognize is not so far removed from the power to be recognized, 
and it is thrillingly significant, after all these dreary years of babble about the omnipotence of money, that the same people who raised Lincoln from penniless obscurity to his place of power and martyrdom, still cherish his name and example with a depth of devotion that increases with each year of national growth. Confusing and confounding the learned foreign critics of the Republic, who missed the finest thing in. American civilization when they failed to learn why we love Lincoln. 2. If Daniel Boone, the mighty hunter and Indian fighter, had not roused the imagination of Virginians and Carolinians by his wonderful and romantic deeds in the exploration of the Kentucky wilderness, the grandfather of Abraham Lincoln would not have left Rockingham County, Virginia, and entered 1,700 acres of land in Kentucky where he was presently slain on his forest farm by a savage in the presence of his three sons. The youngest of these sons, Thomas Lincoln, was the father of the future President of the United States. In spite of an educated, well-to-do American ancestry of pure English Quaker stock, one was a member of the Boston Tea Party, another was a revolutionary Minuteman, served in the Continental Congress and was Attorney General of the United States under Jefferson as frontier boy, who was only six years old when his father was murdered before his eyes, grew up without education to be a wandering work boy, who gradually picked up odd jobs of carpentering. He became a powerfully built, square-set young man, somewhat indolent and improvident, who occasionally showed his temper and courage by knocking down a frontier rowdy. The rough young carpenter in 1806 married Nancy Hanks, a niece of Joseph Hanks, in whose shop he worked at his trade. Nancy, who was the mother of Abraham Lincoln, was the daughter of a supposedly illiterate and superstitious family, but she was comely, intelligent, knew how to read and write, and taught her husband to scrawl his name. The great Lincoln always believed that he got his intellectual powers from his mother. For a time this pair, who were to bring forth the savior of America, dwelt in a log hut, 14 feet square, at Elizabethtown, Kentucky, where they were married. Then a daughter was born. A year later, the carpenter bought a small farm on the Big South Fork of Nolan Creek in Hardin County. Here, on wretched soil overgrown with stunted brush, Thomas Lincoln and Nancy Hanks lived with their infant daughter in a rude log cabin, enduring profound poverty. It was in this mere wooden hutch, which had an earth floor, one door, and one window, that Abraham Lincoln was born on February 12, 1809. What American, however poor, ignorant, unlettered, or discouraged, can look upon the rude timbers of the home which sheltered the birth of the greatest man of the Western Hemisphere without a thrill of hope and a new realization of the opportunities that are co-eternal with conscience, courage, and persistence? What man of any race or country can stand before that cabin and be a coward? Moses, the waif, Peter, the fisherman, Mohammed, the shepherd, Columbus, the sailor boy each age has its separate message of the humanity of God and the divinity of man. The gray-eyed boy Lincoln played alone in the forest near Knob Creek, where his father had secured a better farm. It was a solitary and cheerless life for a child.
Sometimes he sat among the shavings of his father's carpenter shanty a silent, lean little boy with long, black hair and grave, deep-set eyes, dressed in deerskin breeches and moccasins, without toys and almost without companions. For a few months he attended log cabin schools with his sister Sarah, but he learned little more than his letters. It is amazing to think that this man, whose Gettysburg address is accepted as one of the noblest classics of English literature, did not have much more than six months of schooling in his whole life. In 1816, Thomas Lincoln decided to move from Kentucky to Indiana. He built a raft, loaded it with a kit of carpenter's tools and 400 gallons of whiskey, and, depending on his rifle for food, floated down into the Ohio River in search of a new home. Having picked out a place in the Indiana forest, he walked home and, with a borrowed wagon and two horses, he took his wife and children into the wilderness, actually cutting a way through the woods for them. Near Little Pigeon Creek, the carpenter and his wife, assisted by young Abraham, now seven years old, built a shed of logs and poles, partly open to the weather, and here the family lived for a year. Meanwhile, a patch of land was cleared, corn was planted, and as soon as a log cabin without windows could be built, the Lincolns moved into it. The forest swarmed with game and the carpenter's rifle kept his family supplied with venison and deer hides for clothing. They relied on the rifle and the corn patch for life. Little Lincoln climbed at night to his bed of leaves in the loft by a ladder of wooden pins driven into the logs. Not only were the means of life hard to get, but it was a malarial country, and in 1818 the small group of pioneers who came to dwell at Pigeon Creek near the Lincolns were attacked by a pestilence known as the Milk Sickness. In October the mother of Abraham Lincoln died. Her husband saw a coffin out of the forest trees and buried her in a little clearing. Several months later, a wandering frontier clergyman preached a sermon over her lonely, snow-covered grave. No wonder the countenance of the great emancipator moved all who beheld it by its deep melancholy. He knew what sorrow was 45 years before he paced his office in the White House all night with white face and bowed head, sorrowing over the bloody defeat of Chancellorsville, wondering whether he was to be the last president of the United States and praying for the victory that came at Gettysburg. All that year the sensitive boy grieved for the mother who had gone out of his life, but in time his father went back to Elizabethtown, Kentucky, where he married the widow of the town jailer, and presently a four-horse wagon creaked up to the door of the Lincoln cabin in the Indiana forest with the bride, her son, and two daughters, and a load of comfortable household goods, including a feather bed and a walnut bureau, value at $50. Sarah Bush Lincoln, the stepmother of Abraham Lincoln, was a woman of thrift and energy, tall, straight, fair, and a kind-hearted motherly Christian. The American people owe debt to this noble matron who did so much to influence and develop the character of the boy who was yet to save the nation from destruction. She was good to the Lincoln orphans whose mother lay out in the wild forest grave. She gave them warm clothes. 
She threw away the mat of corn husks and leaves on which they slept and replaced it with a soft feather tick. She loved little Abe and the lonely boy returned her kindness and affection. In a primitive cabin set in the midst of a savage country, she created that noblest and best result of a good woman's heart and brain, a happy home. Oh, pale woman of the 20th century, sighing for a mission in the great world's affairs. Perhaps there may be a suggestion for you in the simple story of what Sarah Bush did for Abraham Lincoln and, through him, for the ages. Did not the two malaria-racked and care-driven mothers who lived in the rough-hewn Lincoln cabin do more to influence the political institutions of mankind than all the speeches and votes of women since voting was first invented? 3. Even at the age of 10 years, the frontier lad was a hard worker. When he was not wielding the axe in the forest, he was driving the horses, threshing, plowing, assisting his father as a carpenter. He also hired out to the neighbors as plowboy, hostler, water carrier, baby minder, or doer of odd chores at 25 cents a day. He suddenly began to grow tall and there was no stronger youth in the community than the lank, loose-limbed boy in deerskins, Lindsay Woolsey, and coonskin cap who could make an axe bite so deep into a tree. His stepmother sent him to school again for several months. In 1826, too, he walked nine miles a day to attend a log house school. He had new companions at home now, a stepbrother, two stepsisters, and his cousins, John and Dennis Hanks. As young Lincoln grew taller, his skill and strength as a woodchopper and rail splitter and his willingness to do any kind of work, however trudging or menial in spite of a natural meditative indolence made him widely known. His kindly, helpful disposition and simple honesty gave him a distinct popularity and he was much sought after as a companion, notwithstanding his ungainly figure in rough ways. But it was his extraordinary thirst for knowledge, his efforts to raise himself out of the depths of ignorance that showed the inner power struggling against adverse surroundings. He grew to a height of six feet and four inches by the time he was 17 years old. His legs and arms were long, his hands and feet big, and his skin was dry and yellow. His face was gaunt and his melancholy gray eyes were sunk in cavernous sockets above his prominent cheekbones. A girl schoolmate has described him, his shoes, when he had any, were low. He wore buckskin breeches, Lindsay Woolsey shirt, and a cap made of the skin of a squirrel or coon. His breeches were baggy and lack by several inches meeting the tops of his shoes, thereby exposing his shin bone, sharp, blue and narrow. This is the real Abraham Lincoln, who read, and read, and read, whose constant spells of brooding abstraction, eyes fixed, dreaming face, gave him a reputation for laziness among some of his shallow fellows who would crouch down in the forest or sit on a fence rail for hours to study a book, who would lie on his stomach at night in front of the fireplace and, having no paper or slate, would write and cipher with charcoal on the wooden shovel, on boards and the hewn sides of logs, 
shaving them. Clean when he wanted to write again. Here is his cousin's picture of him at the age of 14. When Abe and I returned to the house from work, he would go to the cupboard, snatch a piece of cornbread, sit down, take a book, cock his legs up as high as his head, and read. We grubbed, plowed, mowed, and worked together barefooted in the field. Whenever Abe had a chance in the field while at work or at the house, he would stop and read. His principal books were in arithmetic, the Bible, Aesop's Fables, Robinson Crusoe, Weems Life of Washington, The Pilgrim's Progress, and A History of the United States. He became the best speller and penman in his neighborhood. Yet there was a vein of waggery in him which occasionally found a vent in such written verse as this. Abraham Lincoln, his hand and pen, he will be good, but God knows when. All this has been told of him many times and in many ways, yet the nation he saved loves to dwell on the picture of the tall, tanned, awkward woodchopper and farm drudge, gawky, angular, iron-muscled, with bare feet or moccasins, deer-hide breeches and coonskin cap, battling out in the forest against his own ignorance and, by sheer force of willpower, conquering knowledge and commanding destiny. Not a whimper against fate, not a word against youth more successful than himself, no complaint of the hard work and coarse food, simply the strivings of a soul not yet conscious of its own greatness, but already superior to its squalid environments. It is probable that there is not a youth in all America today, however poor, ignorant, and forlorn, that has not a better chance to rise in life than Abraham Lincoln had when he started to climb the ladder of light by courage and persistent application. He attended spelling matches, log rollings, and horse races. He wrote vulgar and sometimes silly verse. He outraged the farmers who employed him by delivering comic addresses and buffoonery in the form of sermons from tree stumps to the snickering field hands. Sometimes he thrashed a bully. His strength was tremendous. No man in the country could withstand him. It is said that he once lifted half a ton. Yet his temper was cool, his heart gentle and generous, and back of his sing-songy, rollicking, spraddling youth with its swinging axe blows, forest prowlings, and coarse humor, there was a gravity, dignity, sanity, fairness, generosity, and deep, straight-out eloquence that made him a power in that small community. Think of a young man of six feet and four inches in coonskin and deer hide who could sink an axe deeper into a tree than any pioneer in that heroic region and who yet had perseverance enough in his cabin home to read the revised statutes of Indiana until he could almost repeat them by heart. He became a leader and could gather an audience by merely mounting a stump and waving his hands. Nor was that all. He frequently stopped brawls and acted as umpire between disputants. Another side of his nature was displayed when he found the neighborhood drunkard freezing by the roadside, carried him in his arms to the tavern and worked over him for hours. When Lincoln's sister Sarah married Aaron Grigsby in 1826, 
the 17-year-old giant composed a song and sang it at the wedding. Here are the concluding verses. The woman was not taken from Adam's feet we see, so he must not abuse her, the meaning seems to be. The woman was not taken from Adam's head we know, to show she must not rule him tis evidently so. The woman she was taken from under Adam's arm, so she must be protected from injuries and harm. Yet that dry volume of the revised statutes of Indiana, through which the woodchopper worked so bravely, contained the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the Ordinance of 1787, and he bound them on his heart like a seal and wore them till the hour of his cruel death. As time went on Lincoln developed into a popular storyteller and oracle at Jones Grocery Store in the nearby village of Gentryville. His oratory grew at the expense of his farm work. He went to all the trials in the local courts and trudged 15 miles to Boonville for the sake of hearing a lawsuit tried. Between times he wrote an essay on the American government and another on temperance. He made speeches, he gossiped, he argued public questions, he cracked jokes, he made everybody his friend sometimes he worked. Already he was an American politician, although he did not know it. It is hard to realize that, even later in his career, and with all his mighty strength and courage, the man who preserved government of the people, for the people, and by the people to the world could earn only 37 cents a day, and then he had to split 400 rails for every yard of brown jeans dyed with white walnut bark that would be necessary to make him a pair of trousers. When he was President of the United States, he told Secretary Seward the story of how he had once taken two men and their trunks to a river steamer in a flatboat built by his own hands and got a dollar for it. In these days, it seems like a trifle to me, he added, but it was a most important incident in my life. I could scarcely credit that I, the poor boy, had earned a dollar in less than a day that by honest work I had earned a dollar. In 1820, Mr. Gentry, of Gentryville, loaded a flatboat with produce, put his son in charge of it and hired Lincoln for $8 a month and board to work the bow oars and take it to New Orleans. Near Baton Rouge, the young men tied the boat up at night and were asleep in a cabin when they were wakened to find a gang of Negroes attempting to plunder the cargo. With a club, Lincoln knocked several of the marauders into the river and chased the rest for some distance, returning bloody but victorious. The boat was then hurriedly cut loose, and they floated on all night. That voyage was Lincoln's first brief glimpse of the great world. Till then, he had never seen a large city. In New Orleans, he was yet to see human beings bought and sold, and hear the groans that were afterwards answered by the thunders of the Civil War. 4. Two years later the milk sickness which had robbed Lincoln of his mother again visited the Pigeon Creek settlers, and his father decided to move to Illinois, where rich lands were to be had cheap. Dennis Hanks and Levi Hall accompanied the Lincoln family. The tall young woodchopper had just passed his 21st birthday, and it was he, in buckskin breeches and coonskin cap, 
who goaded on the oxen hitched to the clumsy wagon that creaked and lurched through the March mud and partly frozen streams on that terrible two weeks journey into the Sangamon country of Illinois. He said goodbye to the old log cabin. It was rude and mean, but after all, it was his home. He shook hands with his friends in Gentryville. He took a last look at the unmarked grave of his mother. His boyhood was over. Before setting out for his new home, Lincoln spent all his money, more than $30, in buying petty merchandise, knives, forks, needles, pins, buttons, thread, and other things that might appeal to housewives. And on the voyage to Illinois, the future president of the United States peddled his little wares so successfully that he doubled his money. Thus Abraham Lincoln entered the state which saw him rise to greatness woodchopper, ox driver, peddler, pioneer. Even in that rough, heroic pilgrimage, the tender heart of the man showed itself again and again. One loves to remember Lincoln as Mr. Herndon, his law partner, has described him, pulling off his shoes and stockings and wading a stream through broken ice to save a pet dog left whining on the other side. I could not bear to abandon even a dog, he explained. Presently, the emigrants settled on a bluff overlooking the Sangamon River, five miles from Decatur, in Macon County. All promptly set to work. A clearing was made, trees felled, and a cabin built. Abraham and his cousin, John Hanks, plowed 15 acres of sod and split rails enough to fence the space in. Some of the rails split by Lincoln at that time were 30 years later carried into the convention which nominated him for president. Having reached his majority and seen his father and family safely housed, Lincoln started out to shift for himself. Among other things, he split 3,000 rails for a major warnick, walking three miles a day to his work. Then came the winter of the deep snow, a season so terrible that John Hay has thus described its effects. Geese and chickens were caught by the feet and wings and frozen to the wet ground. A drove of a thousand hogs, which were being driven to St. Louis, rushed together for warmth and became piled in a great heap. Those inside smothered and those outside froze, and the ghastly pyramid remained there on the prairie for weeks, the drovers barely escaped with their lives. Men killed their horses, disemboweled them, and crept into the cavities of their bodies to escape the murderous wind. Lincoln left his father's house empty-handed, save for his axe, and he had to face that blizzard winter as best he could. No man or woman ever heard him complain. In all his after years, he looked back upon the struggles of his early career without a word of self-pity. Those were iron days, but they were not without romance, and life was honest and strengthening. It is doubtful, after all, whether Lincoln's son, who became rich, dined with kings and queens, and came to be president of the $100 million Pullman Company, ever in his comfortable and successful career once felt half the sense of life in its deepest, grandest moods that thrilled his gaunt father facing that fearful winter. 
Let the discouraged American, whose heart grows faint in the presence of bad luck, think of that rude frontiersman to whom hardship brought only strength and renewed courage. In spite of everything, the sources of a man's success are within him, and none can stay him but himself. Lincoln knew famine, and cold, and wandering, but he did not pity himself. Axe in hand, he confronted his fate in that smitten country with as great a soul as when he faced the armed confederacy and saw his country riven and bleeding. In the spring of 1831, Denton Offutt hired Lincoln to go with him on boat, with a load of stock and provisions, to New Orleans, and, after many adventures, in which his strength and ingenuity saved boat and cargo several times, he again found himself at the mouth of the Mississippi. Here he first saw the hideous side of slavery. His law partner thus refers to one of the scenes he witnessed. A vigorous and comely mulatto girl was being sold. She underwent a thorough examination at the hands of the bidders. They pinched her flesh and made her trot up and down the room like a horse. Bidding his companions follow him, he said, by God, boys, let's get away from this. If ever I get a chance to hit that thing, I'll hit it hard. The grandest and bloodiest page of modern history is a record of how Lincoln fulfilled that promise. That very summer, he went to the village of New Salem on the Sangamon River, a village that has long since vanished and became clerk in a log house general store opened by Offutt, who was a restless commercial adventurer. Lincoln and an assistant slept in the store. Here the tall clerk became famous for his stories and homely wit. His immense stature, his strength, his humor, and his penetrating logic attracted attention at once. He talked in quaint, waggish parables, but he never failed to reach the heart or brain. Offutt's store grew to be the common meeting place of the frontiersman and long-legged, droll, Kindly Lincoln developed his natural genius for storytelling and argument. But Offutt bragged of his clerk's strength. That angered the rough, rollicking youths of a nearby settlement known as Clary's Grove, who picked out Jack Armstrong, their leader and a veritable giant, to throw Lincoln. At first Lincoln declined the challenge on the ground that he did not like wooling and pulling. But, Although his inheritance of Quaker blood inclined him to avoid violence, he was finally taunted into the struggle. In the presence of all New Salem and Clary's Grove, he partly stripped his 214 pounds of muscle-ribbed body and conquered the bully of Sangamon County. After that exhibition of strength and pluck, Lincoln was the hero of the community. Braggarts became silent in his presence. A ruffian swore one day in the store before a woman. Lincoln bade him stop, but he continued his abuse. Well, if you must be whipped, said the clerk, I suppose I might as well whip you as any man. And he did it. That was Lincoln. His honesty became a proverb. It is said that, having overcharged a customer six cents, he walked three miles in the dark after the store was closed to give back the money. 
By mistake he sold four ounces of tea for a half pound and the next day trudged to the customer's cabin with the rest of the tea. Just when Lincoln became a conscious politician no man can say. His endless anecdotes and jokes, his winning honesty and good nature, his readiness to accept or stop a fight, his willingness to do a good turn for man, woman or child, and his open scorn for meanness, cruelty or deceit were the simple overflowings of his natural character. He was coarse in his speech and manners. But behind the joking and buffoonery, the primitive man in him was true, gentle, chivalrous. His tender-heartedness was real. His kindliness was not merely the result of a desire to catch friends. He once illustrated himself by quoting an old man at an Indiana church meeting, when I do good I feel good, when I do bad I feel bad, and that's my religion. But in New Salem it soon became evident that Lincoln was not satisfied to remain a clerk in a general store and that the strivings of leadership were in him. He borrowed books. He asked Minton Graham, the schoolmaster, for advice. He read, read, read. He walked many miles at night to speak in debating clubs. He trudged 12 miles to get Kirkham's grammar and often asked his assistant in the store to keep watch with the book while he said the lesson. It was a common thing to find him stretched out on the counter and on a roll of calicos, grammar in hand. His desire to master language became a passion. The whole village took notice. Even the cooper would keep a fire of shavings going at night that Lincoln might read. The young frontiersman of six feet four, who could outlift, outwrestle, and outrun any man in Sagamon County, rising from an almost hopeless abyss of ignorance and poverty, was, by his own resolute efforts, acquiring the power that made him the hero of civilization and the savior of a race. How many of the almost 17 million children who receive free education in the public schools in the United States and who assemble once a year to repeat the imperishable sayings of Lincoln realize how he had to strain and struggle for the knowledge which is offered daily to them as a gift. No wonder that Lincoln became popular in New Salem and that when the Little Black Hawk Indian War broke out he was elected captain of the company which marched forth from the village in April 1831 in buckskin breeches and coon caps with rifles, powder horns, and blankets. It was in that picturesque campaign that Lincoln, coming with his company to a fence gate and not remembering the military word of command necessary to get his company in order through such a narrow space, instantly showed his ingenuity by shouting, this company is dismissed for two minutes when it will fall in again on the other side of the gate. A poor, old half-starved Indian crept into Lincoln's camp for shelter. The excited soldiers insisted on killing him, but Lincoln stood between them and the frightened fugitive. At the risk of his own life, he saved the Indian. The soul of chivalry was in him. He had no chance to fight, and he was compelled to wear a wooden sword for two weeks because his company got drunk he who afterwards commanded Grant, 
Truman ensured me if he returned to his village a hero without having shed blood, for the world honors courage and patience even in those who fail to reach the firing line.